Welcome to episode 327 of the Reformed Brotherhood. I'm Jesse. And I'm Tony, and we are proud members of the Society of Reformed Podcasters. Hey, brother. Hey, brother. Well, it's finally happens. On this episode, we have finally gotten to this whole little mini-series on church polity, which, of course, is just like the fancy $3 or 3.26 euro for all of our listeners, <laughs> continental term for church governance, which yes. if you're hearing that and saying, how exciting could this be? Oh, it's going to be great. Oh, yeah. You're going to love it. And we're going to get there. And this is kind of a unique series, which will give, I think, some of our disclaimers when we actually get to the topic. But that's what's coming for your ears in just a couple of minutes. But of course, before we do that, before we talk about governance and polity, let's talk about affirming and denying. It's everybody's favorite parts of every episode. What are you denying against? Oh, you're starting episode? me off with denials. That's right. Going sneaky. Um, this is sort of one of those adventures in Romans one kind of denials, or maybe it's more like adventures in Genesis three kind of denials. So I'm just denying, uh, like how hard it is to like run errands. So it sounds, sounds silly, but like my life is such that I have basically one day a week to do errands of any sort in town. And it seems like it never fails that my errands get all jacked up. So like, a store that I need to be open is closed or something happens. And my whole usually relatively carefully planned schedule and route just gets totally messed up. And this just goes to like thorns and thistles, right? Like even something as simple as like running into town to buy supplies and do a B or C drop garbage off at the dump. Even something as straightforward as that, which is work, right? It's something we have to do. Even that is messed up by the fall. So I don't, I don't need to go any deeper than that. I just, Maybe maybe the listener can tell that I had a rough day running errands today if they're thinking through that, but uh, it, it just seems like things always get, always get jacked up. I tell you what, I'm going to piggyback on that too. I'm just going to use that as my denial or springboard for something that's very similar. I've long had this thought, whatever, you know, we often hear about the hedonistic treadmill, this idea that the more that you get, that basically you have this sense that if you acquire something, it's going to bring you this greater sense of joy and happiness. You get that thing, it becomes normative, and therefore you have to keep getting back on the treadmill to kind of increase your level of satisfaction or happiness. And you end up exhausted because you can never actually achieve the thing that you thought that you were going to acquire. Right. Well, I don't know what I would call it, but I've long thought, there's something like that, but in reverse, maybe like reverse treadmill or like downward spiral for uh, Adventures of Romans 1 and Genesis 3. Yeah. In the sense that we can talk about and we have what an amazing time it is to be alive. So in other words, like I don't have to grow apples. I just go to the store and buy them. Or in my case, because my wife is super gracious to me, she goes and buys them. And oh, yet, man. and yeah. As easy as life has become, so to speak, or certainly as easy as it is in this day and age and the place where you and I live, it still has its own difficulties. In other words, like just like the hedonist of treadmill, what compounds is this idea that sin continues to make things worse, but just in different ways, but it's still annoying and it's still disruptive. And so for all this talk about we'll just be better off or the internet will bring us closer together, Facebook does that, and yet it also promulgates all this conflict and vitriol and heat instead of light a lot of the time. So you're totally right. And I think that some might hear saying, 
well, you're just complaining about all the great things you have. That's partially true. And yet I think we can still also be honest with the fact that even though you can go out and get, you can like live like a king or a queen relative to a prior age, where you can go to the grocery store and get everything from like ghee to, I don't know, somewhere like lobster to alcohol, all in the same place. Like you can just go into your fridge and you're like, here's this like cornucopia yeah. and variety of food that really shouldn't exist in any one point in place in the world, except for this amazing world in which we live that God has given us. Even still, acquiring all that somehow can still be so frustrating, yeah. and so annoying. And that is Genesis 3 and Romans 1, for sure. Yeah, absolutely. That's true. And it feels like um, it feels like things never go wrong when you have like a nice buffer built in. Like when you build in a nice buffer to your day and like you've got that bandwidth for it to go wrong, everything goes flawlessly. And when you are on a tight schedule and you've got a, an appointment to be or whatever, um, it just everything goes sideways. I, I don't know what causes that other than just that's just the way the world is. But yeah, yeah, it's, it's I don't like it. I'm not a fan. Yeah, it's a real struggle, again, in the sense that we understand that it seems to us. And again, I think this is where the atheist, the agnostic really must struggle, honestly, when they yeah. do their errands. And that is, well, why must it be this way? Why, right. In other words, why wouldn't I just assume when I walk out the door and get into my car that an equal number of probabilistic good and bad things will happen? Right. And on average, everything will just kind of fall out. Right. Instead, we always have the sense that things should go well for us, that things should more or less be smooth. Right. Where do we get that from? I mean, this is, again, that, that's like a heavenly proclivity to understand that you might go out into the world and that some transcendent force would be for you right. in the way that you go organize your grocery trip and your appointments and everything <laughs> else. Like, yeah. you know what I mean? The, the agnostic, the atheist has to stand up underneath that and say, like, here's how I explain that very thing. Otherwise, they should just be like, if you say, like, the atheist should just be like, oh, how was your day? How was your errand trip? They should be like, yeah, it was fine. Yeah. It was like an amalgam of molecules bumping around to each other in ways that were both, you know, productive and unproductive, even which of course I'm acknowledging those terms themselves are impounded with some kind of ethical understanding of morality. But even still, if I hold that aside for a second, you just say, you'd have to say, yeah, it was, it was fine. It was neither good nor bad, an equal amount of weird things happened. And I had no expectation for things to go better than not good at all. Well, and what makes it good or bad in the first place? Exactly. That's what I'm saying. Even those terms are impounded. Right with some kind of moral pedigree. We mean something by them. We have to have a standard by which to measure them. So, I mean, this is what we do in this podcast. It starts with like a denying against just, again, the annoyance uh, of errands, which by the way, one last thing I'll say, I thought about this as well, that all the things that we have to do as part of life, wherever you live, whether that be things like acquiring the provisions to stay alive, uh, again, under the, under the presumption that God gives us these things, of course, and yet we have a role to play in acquiring them, which is literally going and getting like the fruits and vegetables and the meat, all that stuff, or doing laundry or like washing dishes. Like th there's like a weird tax on life, which comes from the fact that we don't find those things to be particularly fruitful and enjoyable. And I think even that is showing the perversion of what work has become. But I have to imagine that even the quote unquote tax of life that Adam and Eve encountered before the fall was in some ways a joy to them to partake in. And we find those things annoying. Like how many times have you been like, really, yeah. we have more dishes? Like how many people are living in this house right now? That yeah. There are more dishes yet to wash. Like there, is, there are more pants to fold. There are more shirts to iron. There's more underwear to wash. Like how is this possible? Yeah. And I think that as well is Adventures in, in Romans 1 and Genesis 3. You got me all fired up now on this 
whole topic of <laughs> the sin of everyday life, like the monotony of sin and the monotony of the fall that we think is normative and yet is not really normative because we find it to be annoying. And why? Because God has put a dirty in our hearts. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. That's all I got to say. All right. You're going to have to save me and go on to something that's a little bit more upbeat. What are you affirming with? Well, I don't know if it's more upbeat, but uh, so <laughs> I, I stumbled upon a author and a website. So the author's name is Ryan Holiday. Have you encountered Ryan Holiday online at all? This name is familiar to me. If you get into like productivity YouTube, oh, that's why you you will discover that this dude is everywhere, but for good reason. So Ryan Holiday is a, a professional philosopher, and he has spent most of his time studying Stoicism, and so he has a web page called the Daily Stoic. Now there can be a reasonable argument. I can, I can just see people smashing that unsubscribe button right now, but there is a reasonable argument that Paul uh, was actually. Uh, positively influenced by Stoic the Stoic philosophy of his day. I'm not saying Paul was a Stoic philosopher, but a lot of what Paul has to say, particularly in the epistles, bears a striking resemblance to a lot of what Stoicism teaches in terms of sure. mastering our emotions, mastering our passions, our, you know, those kinds of things. So I've been reading a little bit of Stoic philosophy. I've been reading Marcus Aurelius's meditations, which are interesting. They're very good. Um, they were, they're sort of like truisms that he wrote to himself and he just would write them down as he came across them. It's almost like Jonathan Edwards resolutions. Um, but daily stoic is an interesting website. They have a newsletter where they'll send you a little five or six page, um, primer on an element of stoic philosophy. And I'm just, I'm really enjoying kind of learning about this philosophy a little bit and maybe to sort of like not have everyone think that I'm sliding into some sort of like weird hole where I'm just not going to go to the Bible anymore. Of course, the Bible is the revealed word of God, and that's the only place that we can go for sure revelation. However, God also speaks in the uh, in his revelation through nature. And as people reflect on nature, as they reflect on the book of nature, sometimes non-Christians, because of God's common grace and because of the uh, Imago Dei, sometimes they stumble on principles that are true. They, they don't recognize them as true for the correct reasons. They don't recognize them as true for true reasons, but that doesn't mean they're not true. And I see a lot of that in what I'm reading of Stoic philosophy. So like, one of Marcus Aurelius's famous statements is basically like, remember that everyone you meet today will be surly and um, and cranky and, and evil and, and selfish. And they're, right. they are this way because they don't know how to tell good from evil. And then it's basically like a call to himself. You know, he was the emperor of Rome. So it's a call to himself to be compassionate to these people because he was once like they are. And I think, you know, when I think about the Christian life, particularly, I think in some online reform circles, we have this tendency to very quickly forget the, just the, you know, ridiculous idiot that we were four years ago when we didn't know what we were talking about and we were just rude to people. Um, we should think about the fact that we were once, we once were as that, you know, that random guy on Twitter who's just flaming everybody is. We, we were probably that guy at one point. So I find a lot of things commendable in what I'm reading of Stoic philosophy. Lots of things that seem to be good common grace things that, of course, are bounced up against the sieve of Scripture. You know, if, if it matches with what Scripture has to say, then we should take that as something that 
a pagan stumbled upon. Uh, and if it's contrary to scripture, then we discard it. But I've just found it to be very interesting and edifying. So check it out. Daily Stoic. Ryan Holiday has a really, really vibrant YouTube channel. He has a podcast that I haven't really gotten into yet. Um, but he's also just a really compelling kind of an interesting speaker. He, he's a very compelling writer. Um, just one of those people that's kind of a joy to read, even if you don't agree with what he has to say. This is a really great affirmation. Here's why. Because the disclaimer you gave, of course, betrays the fact that there are some people who would hear that and say, oh my goodness, you guys have fallen off the deep end. Yeah. You're going into something that you ought not to. And that in some ways, I think is your point. First off, is that we don't want to throw out philosophy as if it's the baby in the bathwater. So this idea for me is like, I, I read a lot of philosophy. And in the course of that, what you find is it's like the book of James light. You right. know, it's like somebody stumbles upon this great concept. And they're like, wouldn't it be great if we were all compassionate to each other? If we right. treated each person charitably first, and like, this is an amazing idea. I'm going to write a book about this. This is great philosophy. And you say, yeah, of course. And you, when you want to say God owns that first, he always owned that first. So all that to say, I, I don't think we have to be threatened by engaging in some philosophy and then philosophical discussion, especially because to your point with the Apostle Paul, I think I find him in his writing empowered and governed by the Holy Spirit entering into his culture at the time in those doors. He walks through right. those doors. And instead, though, of engaging and saying, well, I'm going to talk to you on the level of this kind of temporal, philosophical understanding and underpinnings, it gets elevated because he stacks there and brings the full counsel of God into it by way of that entry point. Right. That is the goodness and the brilliance of God. So I'm totally with you. I like these ideas. I think it's helpful because I think for a lot of people, where they start when they're looking for some kind of transcendent truth is in philosophy because right. philosophy has this opinion of being greater and beyond us and to somehow build up and draw out these eternal principles. I mean, that's really what Marcus Aurelius was after there in many ways, right. which is why, of course, the thing is still being published and people read it continually and use that to try to govern yeah. their lives. So I really, really like that. I also just find like when we read that stuff that we, a lot of times I at least laugh internally, if not externally, because you read it and you think, yeah, of course, like and God, and God knows, God knows. Yeah. So and I actually think Christians would be better served some ways to read those things because it draws them back into the scriptures. If you have good scriptural muscle memory, when you read those things, you'll be drawn, I think, back to the passages of Jesus' teaching, of the apostles and prophets, of the Old Testament, which promulgate those concepts, not because they're just good for some kind of self-rehabilitation, right. but because they are part and parcel of the regeneration yeah. that God does in our lives. And they become outward manifestations of something that is inwardly more significant than just trying to recapitulate or capitulate to a certain set of behaviors. So I think it's worth practicing. I've said this a lot to a couple of my colleagues. We have to undergo a severe, I'll say it that way, amount of training in my line of work. Some of that is technical and some of it is about soft skills. And the thing that I remember most about training I undertook in 2022 was a video in which a woman was just espousing these, these general ideas of how to treat one another. And she evoked, or I don't know if she created this or used it from somebody else, this rule of five which anytime she encounters a, a situation where somebody might have reacted or she perceives the reaction to be negative toward her, what she does is she conceives in her mind of five charitable things that might be going on in that person's life that would have caused them to react in this way. So like if you and I were passing in a hallway, I say hello to you and you just keep your head down and ignore me. The first thing I ought to do is think of five things of why that could be the case. Like maybe, you know, your dog just died and you're just having a rough day. Or maybe you just came from a really difficult meeting. Or maybe you're sick and you're running to the bathroom. Yeah. And you're just like, I, I just need to get out of here. And I thought, my goodness, that's like Christians should take that to heart. That is in some ways a philosophical bent. 
but it is in many ways going right to the height of scripture, which is to love and to be compassionate. And to your point, even the apostle Paul says like, we were all prisoners of war right. at one point. And so to come as that, as your initial response to somebody in that way is significant and meaningful. And if we need yeah. philosophy to remind us of that, I say, let's do it. Let's take it, redeem it and pull us back into the scriptures in his practice. Yeah, so check it out. DailyStoic.com has just got a lot of really interesting stuff. Their newsletter, I love the newsletter. It's really unintrusive. He sends you a very short newsletter that has like a basic overview of like the topic for the day and then a link to a longer PDF if you're actually interested in it. So it's not one of those obnoxious newsletters where you you got like seven hours of reading in front of you every morning. So check it out. But Jesse, what are you affirming today? Okay, well, the risk of I feel like I've already spoken too much. Here's an affirmation that's, I think, a little bit grandiose. And I think if you're maybe an English speaker, you're familiar with the phrase, love the one you're with. So here's my affirmation. It's love the one you're with. And of course, when we say that in English, what we're essentially meaning is the opposite of that old meme. I think it's an old meme now with like a dude who's walking next to a girl who sees a dude passing and turns around to look at her. Yeah, It's this idea of being content enjoying the one, the thing that you're with, loving that thing as opposed to looking elsewhere continually for contentment. Here's my slight bent on this. And I can finally say and share this affirmation because we've gotten to the point where we've talked about all this language. We've used these terms. They're on everybody's ears and we're about to talk about polity. And so here it goes. I'm going to slightly change that phrase. What I'm saying is I'm affirming with love the visible church you're with. Yes. So I think there is some sense, especially among Reformed people, and I'm putting myself at the chief in the top of that list and in this camp, where we have this sense sometimes that if I don't go to an explicitly Reformed church, if I do not see that somewhere on the bulletin or the doors, if it's not overtly confessional, if it's not disclosed and upfront, if it doesn't have all the preferences that I really like that as I'm understanding Reformed theology that I really want to have, then somehow I'm always looking for that next thing, the yeah. next or better thing. And I'm saying, especially as we go through talking about different forms of church government, that I think as we as Reformed people need to acknowledge, as we often do in our theology, that if God is sovereign, he's not making mistakes where he's putting all of us. He's not making mistakes when he's pushing us in, so to speak, sometimes to different denominations or different churches. And that I think there's a great advantage, blessing, and privilege to be involved with brothers and sisters in a congregation that is preaching the gospel, that has strong fidelity to the Lord Jesus Christ, that is upholding him as the only means of salvation, and yet with which you might have legitimate disagreement on open-handed issues. Like, it may be Christian that you don't love your church. Maybe you're finding fault with its worship. Maybe you find fault with its leadership. Maybe you're finding fault in some of its doctrines. Maybe you're finding fault in its members or the lack of members. There's no perfect churches, but the church that resides on earth, which in the very least glimmers the truths of the gospel and the Christ of the Bible and holds the faith that's once delivered to the saints is still God's church. And it's the church that he's building. So I say, lean into it, loved ones. Yeah, It's okay. And even if like, let's say you have proclivities to certain confessions, you might say things like, oh, I go to this church, but I'm really like this. Don't do that. Don't yeah. do that. Lean into the church where God has put you in so much as the church which you're attending is preaching the gospel, is holding fast to the faith, does have scriptural integrity and doctrinal fidelity, but lean into it. Don't be that meme where you're always looking over your shoulder because I think the bottom line is God is putting us into places in the visible church where he sees best for us. And I'm saying, love the visible church that you're with, yeah. whatever that one is. 
love it and, and get after it. And don't have any qualms about how you speak about it or your attendance or your membership or your participation in it. Just be a part of it and love it. Spend all your energy there. And that, that's where I'm increasingly at. And I think that's, that's maybe a, a part denial and also a part affirmation. But I think that we could put a lot more of our energy into loving the churches where God has given us to be uh, and, and acknowledging that he's not made a mistake because if there's all these quote unquote reformed theological people and somehow they're not, let's say, you know, they're not all mixing metaphors here a little bit, mixing denominations, but you're not all Lutheran. You're not more Episcopalian. You're not all Presbyterian that somehow God has, has made a mistake. Uh, you can be in a non-denominational church. You could be in a Baptist church. You could be a Presbyterian church. You could be picket. You could be there, uh, especially if that's where God has put you in the gospels being preached. Yeah. I say, love the church you're with. What do you think? I'm with you. I think um, one of the things that we didn't get to last week that I want to just touch on, because I think it's, this is a perfect affirmation to sort of lead us into this, this part of the series. So I'm going to read, um, this is chapter 25 of the Westminster Confession, and this is section four, and I'm also going to read section five. So section four reads, this Catholic church, talking about the visible church, this Catholic church has been sometimes more, sometimes less visible. And particular churches, which are members thereof, are more or less pure, according as the doctrine of the gospel is taught and embraced, ordinances administered, and public worship performed more or less purely in them. So just pause, right? The point of that is to say, uh, some churches are closer to perfect than others. The doesn't say there is a perfect church because I don't, I, I mean, it doesn't explicitly say there isn't, but I don't think that the Westminster divines would argue that any church gets it perfectly right all the time. Right. It's saying that some churches are more pure. And when they say pure, they, they mean something like more doctrinally pure. They're closer to the pure doctrine of the, of the Bible than other churches. And some are less pure, but no, all of these are still part of members of the visible church. And then section five, the purest churches under heaven are subject both to mixture and error. So there it is. That's where they're saying there's no perfect church. Even the purest church under heaven, meaning not, not the heavenly church, any, the purest earthly church is sometimes, uh, is subject to both mixture and error. So mixture referring to the mixed body, there, there are Christians and non-Christians there. You can never be a hundred percent sure that everyone who is in a given body is a Christian or is not a Christian. Right. And then error, it's referring to doctrinal error. And some have so degenerated as to become no churches of Christ. So it is possible for a given particular local congregation church to sort of fall out the bottom, right? There, there's that possibility. If that's your church, if you feel like you're in a church that has fallen out of the bottom, then you need to find a different church because that is no right. church, but to quote the confession again, but a synagogue of Satan. Right. So we have to be careful when we're talking about theology, when we're talking about, in our case, in this next couple episodes, church polity, um, when we're talking about our own church, uh, we have to be careful not to act as though our own church is so perfect that it's it's not subject to mixture or error. And we also have to be careful not to overemphasize the parts of our congregation that we think are mixed or unpure. Right. Every one of us, if we're honest and we have our eyes open, could find things in our church that are less than ideal, that are less than perfect. And I really like what you're saying here is that just like when you are in a marriage, there are things about your spouse that you you would probably say are not perfect. 
Um, I mean, not my spouse, of course, just in case she listens to this and not, not Jesse's spouse, of course, in case she listens. No, that's right. Um, but in a normal person, uh, we, we would say there are things about our spouse that aren't perfect. And the, the point is you don't go around pointing those out all the time. That's not, that's not a good kind thing for a husband to do is to spend all of their time focusing on the faults of their wife or a wife focusing on the faults of her husband. Instead, like the Bible teaches us, we allow love to over, you know, to sort of cover over those faults. It's not that we ignore them. It's not that we don't seek for them to improve and take opportunities as they come and are are appropriate to point out issues and work towards improvement, but we don't spend all of our time focusing on those things. So I really like what you've got to say on this one. Yeah, it, to me, it bleeds into this topic, which is why I've been kind of holding it. I, I pocketed it for a time yeah. being. I think that in my own life, and I'll be critical of myself here, maybe others will resonate and identify. If you don't, that's okay. You can just skip the next like 15 seconds if you want to. You probably have that button on your device right now. <laughs> Go ahead. I'll wait. Here's what I'm saying is sometimes when Reformed people, like I have in the past, speak about attending a particular church that is like not Reformed, we speak about it as if we're doing it under duress right. or with protest, as if like we're sitting along the river's edge in Babylon saying, oh, if we could only be right. in the promised land. And I think that that's just fundamentally unhealthy. It's it's really a misunderstanding, again, of God's sovereignty. It's a lack of trust. And what I'm not saying is that, again, to your point, if your church is uh, aggressively against the full counsel of God, that's a problem. Then, yeah, certainly there are reasons to leave. But as we said before, the reasons to leave a church, like the error that separates you from Christ that is promulgated in your congregation, that list of those errors is narrow and small. Right. It's not wide. It's certainly not about preference. And so I think that we could just use a lot more energy in saying, you know what, like this is where God has placed me. And yeah, maybe the people that I rub shoulders with have different views. Maybe they're all Arminian. Maybe yeah. they all have different views on baptism, but the fact of the matter is God has placed you in that place, not under duress, but so that you might be a blessing, that you might minister, that you might be ministered to. And I think that even our theological discourse is part of that. So I I think to your point, unless there's like these glaring kind of heretical issues taking place there. And I think to be honest, if you're a person that's steeping yourself in prayer and in the scriptures, those will become evident and plain. Right. The main things will be the plain things in the, that case. You won't have to be like, I wonder if I should leave. Right. Uh, I think you'll be like, man, this is, I got to get out of here. <laughs> like, do not walk, run. It's the other stuff that yeah. I think sometimes we're always like wishing. We are sometimes, as Reformed people, that person in the meme who's looking over the shoulder at like some quote unquote truly reformed, truly confessional church, trying to find that thing, trying to go to that place, maybe even driving to extreme measures literally maybe driving far away. And I might ask, is it possible that what God has for you is to love the visible church you're with? So as we get into this this whole topic, we're going to go through, we have a, a couple of episodes coming your way on different polities. And that term polity, again, is like just a super fun term, which is a Greek word. It's derived for city. And in general English usage, we're usually talking about some form of government in like a city or a nation, a body of laws which govern some kind of political entity, which maybe sounds like overtly secular, but of course, what we're talking about here is how should the church undertake its responsibility in preaching the gospel and administering the sacraments. And so we're going to go through a couple of different versions of that. Here's my big disclaimer. Tony and I are not experts on church polity. Let me ask you this question. You didn't know I was going to ask you this. How many churches have you been a member of in your lifetime? Oh, uh, four, I think. Five, okay, so maybe? you've been, been four. I've been a, a member of three churches. So 
some of this, I think, is like, you know, we have a sense, you can go out and yourself find all kinds of good resources on each of these little versions of brands that we're going to talk about here. I think there's a lot of open-headedness, of course, in the structures that churches use to govern their political entity and their identity and the way in which they conduct the business of properly, we're presuming that properly administering the preaching of the gospel and the sacraments, ordinances, all this stuff. Yeah. However, there is to me, in my mind at least, as I think about this, something said for an experiential nature with some of these things. There's yes. no doubt people who are going to listen to us and say, my goodness, you guys are getting it wrong because you never actually experienced it. And we acknowledge that. I think the goal of this isn't necessarily to be polemic and critical in our understanding of these, but to give the listener, if they have ears, something to hear about the variety and the underpinnings, the kind of essential pillars of each of these things, so as to give you a springboard for either more research, more discussion, or just greater thought. Yeah. That, I think, is the place where we begin, just so you know that. What say you? Do you have any other disclaimers to add to that before we get into the first of the many polities we'll discuss? Yeah, I, I think it's important to remember two things. The first is that we're going to be describing kind of a hypothetical, theoretical, idealized form of what what the particular <laughs> right. polity we're talking about is. Right. In actual practice, no one, uh, no local body is purely any one of these. We've, we've kind of broken it down into three different um, polities. You could break most of those polities into sort of subdivisions and different yes. gradients, but no one particular church is purely any one of those things. So here's a perfect example. We're going to be talking about Episcopal um, polity, which is bishop-led or, or bishop-centric polity, and we'll talk about what that is. The most stark example is the Roman Catholic Church. Right. Even in the Roman Catholic Church, there are local decisions for a given parish group that are determined by a, the, by the congregation. So in that sense, that's a congregational decision. So there's no there's no um, there's no polity that is a pure example of any one of these three, or sometimes people will break it into four um, examples. So that's important to remember. And the other thing to remember uh, that those were both of them. That was my two disclaimers, and I combined them into one. I'm I'm like that much more efficient than I even realized I was. So we're describing idealized forms of this, and no congregation is just this. Oh, here's the second one. Okay, I'm I'm my brain is catching up with me. Here we go. Because there is no specific uh, localized instance of any one of these things that is 100% pure, and because you could break these three categories into a million different subcategories. You may feel like we're describing your your polity uh, and describing it not correctly. Well, that's probably the case because we can't describe right. every individual congregation and every individual congregation has different emphases. So you might be, when we get to Presbyterianism, I'm going to be describing the kind of Presbyterian that I'm the most, or Presbyterianism that I'm the most directly familiar with, which is basically what you would see in the PCA or the OPC, Right. And there's differences even between those two, but you might be part of an RPCNA church or a, a UCR church, or, you know, you might be part of a Dutch continental church that we could broadly describe as Presbyterian. It falls under the same category and be like, wait a second, that's totally not right. Well, that's because I'm describing this sort of hypothetical, theoretical construct. So just keep that in mind before you write your emails. We want your emails. Feel free to email us if we've got something wrong. But keep in mind that we're, we're not trying to describe the minutiae. We're trying to describe sort of the broad contours of these positions. Yeah, that's right on. So let's get into it. So this is the EP episode. 
not extended play, but Episcopal polity. And as we've already kind of hinted at a couple of times, like how many times can we bury the lead? Yeah. Episcopal polity? Like, I feel like that should be our new tagline. Reform brotherhood. We bury the lead. <laughs> we said it like six times. So I, to me, if you were to ask me in the elevator and I only have 20 seconds, what does it mean? Episcopal describes the church in which the source of authority is this college of bishops, bishops, right. typically bishops within the historic, and this is a fun word for Episcopalians, the Episcopate. And we're going to get into like a lot of fun words with all these polity pieces like Presbyterian and Presbyter. Like those are also right. like super, like Presbyter is like, you should just try to use that as often as you can. That's, that's, that's another episode, but yeah. it's a super great word. It's super fun. So um, we're talking about like a, a different sense of authority. And let's start with the fact that if you're Protestant right now, you're hearing the word bishop and you're thinking of one of two things, perhaps. You're thinking of pointy hats or you're thinking of the chess piece. Which is one and, of the same thing. Yeah, well, it, essentially, of course. Right. Um, but like those are sometimes like the, the place that our mind initially goes, at least at least for me. And so I think that some people will automatically bristle because they'll be like, what is this kind of rigid, so to speak, hierarchical authority that you speak of? But this is still wrapped up in a sense of service for Episcopal polity. So it starts with this idea that there is a college of bishops. There's a center, certain central authority Right. And that is essentially what guides the church. And again, in its normal order of operations in its administration. Yeah, this might be pejorative, but I'm not trying to be. Um, okay. The Episcopal model is more or less a pyramid scheme, right? So, wow. so you you have wow. you have a hierarchical structure where there you, there is these layers. And each layer that you go up in the authority level gets narrower and narrower and narrower. Right. Until you yes. get to the top level, which is generally going to be just a single overseeing bishop. Right. And that's what the word bishop or, you know, um, episkopos is the Greek word overseer, supervisor. All of these words mean the same thing. So right. a bishop um, in, in once an episcopal model became um dominant, which there's lots of good historical documentation and, and discussion we could have. But once it became dominant, what you had was local congregations that usually had a deacon, a priest, or a couple priests, and then a bishop who oversaw, who's sort of the senior pastor of that model. That was the old, that's the oldest documentation that we have, is that local churches, depending on their sides, had priests and one of those priests was sort of above the others. There was like the greatest among equals is a common phrase. Right. As the church grew, what we see happening is that clumps of churches that are close to each other in a unified geographic area would typically appoint or have a bishop who not only oversaw that particular church, but was also overseeing the priests at another local church. So if we were to take this Episcopal model and overlay it kind of on what we see in Galatia, right? The, the letter to the Galatians is not written to the church in Galatia, it's written to the churches in Galatia. So what we have is this grouping of churches that exist in this geographic region. If we overlay Episcopal um, polity on top of that, each, each church had priests and there was probably... I don't think there actually was, but if we were looking at this from an Episcopal model, there would be a bishop who oversaw all of those local churches. And then as the church spread out further, now you have things like archbishops, which would oversee dioceses, would oversee many different geographical regions. And then right. you would have cardinals exactly. later on in development that oversee many different 
areas of where the archbishops were, and then you would have the pope or you'd have the highest level who would be overseeing the entire church. And it forms this pyramid where each person, each layer of the pyramid gets more narrow and all of the authority gets centralized in the top. Now, again, there are other models that use bishops that we could call Episcopal that don't have that same narrowing going on, but that hierarchical structure where authority comes from the top down that is the Episcopal model. So whether that's the Church of England, right, there's Protestant denominations that utilize bishops, Methodists utilize bishops. They don't utilize them necessarily in the same way that we would think of the Roman Catholic Church. Um, but the Anglican structure is very similar to the Roman Catholic structure. There's a different idea of how that authority is vested as you go up, but ultimately goes up and narrows to the Archbishop of Canterbury, which is seated in England. So that's the basic model, but... There are all these different variations to sort of grapple with and think about as well. Yeah, in some ways it's like, and we'll get to this when we talk about every one of them. It's a bit like describing a car, but somebody's like, well, I have a Tesla or I have like a Hyundai. Like, yes, they're both cars. And so, of course, they're going to have like some nuances in the way in which they actually run. But we're trying to describe just what a vehicle is generally. So I like what you said, because, again, I think to the Protestant ear, some of that is unfamiliar or just derivative at best. And we're talking about... (laughs) I mean, we can be clear that, of course, when you say pyramid scheme, it's not as if like the people underneath the bishop are somehow like the bishop benefits from the fact that like the people underneath are like selling subscriptions, the subscription based model or somehow derive like unequal benefit from those underneath them. But just merely that we're talking about, there is a well-defined, I'll say this way, chain of command, theologically speaking. Right. Doctrinally speaking. And that leadership means something. Also, many times in the Episcopal model. I think what sometimes gets undervalued in when we're talking about polity is the way in which church organizes its resource allocation, which is an important thing. So the degree to which churches as parts of this, you know, grand polity are able to receive help or to administer support to others and how well or differently that is organized such that there is this network in which there's both an awareness of what's going on across a wide geographic area, but also an ability to transfer and distribute resources as they see fit, in other words, to help with both the physical and the spiritual needs that exist within their communities. So the bishop, though, is given kind of like hegemony over this. Like you said, generally, and this is the fun part of talking about this because we get all the words, generally the bishop is overseer of like a diocese, which is just a geographic region that contains several churches. And that person is invested with the responsibility to give pastoral care to the leaders of the churches in his diocese, as well as the authority to discipline ordained leaders who by sin or false teaching fail to live up to the task of caring for their congregation. And that is like a common term. For instance, in the denomination I belong to, we have a bishop, we call it a district superintendent. Right. It's the same kind yes. of terminology. So you're going to find that represented everywhere. And so this person is, this man is the guardian of orthodox theology within that geographic region and the chief representative to other dioceses and across, like all across the world. Right. And that bishop is likely then to oversee several priests, which interestingly, just in, people, in case people are having issue with that word, that word, I think, as we talked about before, it also, of course, comes from the Greek word elder, presbyteros, so presbyter, proster, priest. The priest is chosen leader of a congregation. He is vetted by the members of that church and approved by them, and the bishop for ordination is responsible for maintaining all the orthodoxy in the local setting, overseeing like the proper celebration right, right. of all the ordinances and the sacraments within his parish. So hopefully people are saying like we have go from something like a bishop to a priest. Underneath that, there might be deacons, primate, rector, 
vicar, curate, layperson, like vestry, all like, I mean, I will say this, the Episcopal model has all these super sweet words that are derived from like Greek and Latin <laughs> yeah. that we sometimes like borrow, but we don't regularly know. Here's what appeals to me about this particular model of how to conduct the church. I do like the structure. I do appreciate that it's organized. And I do appreciate, I think that we ought to recognize that in this, there is a strong commitment to making sure that orthodoxy is guarded and promoted. Now, I'm going to make this general statement about polity, especially really organized polity, like we see in the Episcopalian model. And that is, to me, it's like a form of leverage. So, of course, like leverage is a mechanical advantage that has a multiplying or multiplicative effect. I can only think about this in terms of finance. If you have $100 that's your own and you invest that and it goes to $200, that's 100% um, return. However, if you employ leverage, and by that I mean, let's say you borrow $50, you put in $50, so you have a total of $100, but part of it you borrowed from somebody else. If that same $100 grows to $200, because you borrowed a part of it, your return is 200%. You've magnified or multiplied it. It works great when things go well. However, when leverage cuts against you when things go poorly, if your investment were to drop by to $50, in the first instance, you lose 50%. In the second, where you've levered up or you've used gearing, you've created the, me the mechanical advantage, you lose 100%. Right. So to me, polity like this, when it works, it's really, really, really great. However, there's plenty of stories, especially right now, of decisions and this organization being made and used and promulgated and levered in such a way that it's actually changing the scope and nature of what is orthodoxy. And then that has an outsized and multiplicative impact that could be potentially very, very negative. So to me, again, this is like a multiplicative effect that can be both good and bad. Yeah. And I think, you know, a point you made that I think is really important for us to reemphasize is that just because the person of authority is not called a bishop does not necessarily mean this is not an Episcopal model. Yeah, for right? sure. So so there are, there are and, I, and this isn't a slam against your denomination or anything like that. It may sound like it. It's really not intended to be. Here we go. There are plenty of denominations that have tried to distance themselves or even local churches that have tried to distance themselves from um, Episcopal polity by just right. renaming things. Right. I don't right. I'm, I'm this is not me overly qualifying. I legitimately don't think that that's what your denomination is doing. Right. I know your denomination. I don't think that's what's going on. But there are there are churches and denominations that do that. They they take the sure. exact same structure and they just paper new terms over on top of it and say, well, we're not we're not like them. We we don't call them. We don't have priests. We have pastors. OK, but your pastors are serving as go betweens between God and man. Right. Like right. you like you have a sacerdotal system that is the same as what the priestly class is in, in Roman Catholicism. The other thing that I think is important to remember is that just because a given body uses the terminology of Episcopal Episcopal um, governance doesn't actually mean they are right. So you can go both ways. You can have um, you could have a body that calls. This is actually really common in a lot of Pentecostal circles where like instead of calling their senior pastor a pastor, they call him a bishop. But that's still a fully, a, a relatively independent, autonomous local congregation that doesn't have any sort of external authority that they report to, that that pastor or bishop reports to. Well, that's not an Episcopal model just because we call it a bishop. So the other thing I think is important, and we'll get to this, we'll get to this later on in the, in the Brigger series here. Right now, we're not focused on 
the role of a priest as sort of this intermediary between God and man. That's a different topic. Right now, we're just talking about the way that the authority of the church is vested, right? In this model, it's vested in a hierarchical, top-down disbursement pattern, right? There's the authority at the top, which is, um, at least in in theory, is supposed to be God's authority granted to the the top person of this um of this pyramid structure and then that authority is dispersed downward through that structure into the local context and it right it disperses as it filters down we're not talking about roman catholic priests who are intermediaries or you know, um, a person who operates in Christo, right? In the place of Christ. That's not what we're talking about. We will talk about that down in the future. That's not where we're at now. I think where, what I want to do though, is we've talked a little bit about some of the strengths. I agree with you. The strength of this model is it is a lot, um, when it's working well, it's a lot easier to maintain a sense of doctrinal consistency and conformity. And I don't mean that in the negative sense. Conformity can be bad. In this sense, conformity is actually good, right? It's a lot easier to enforce a doctrinal standard in a model which has this sort of hierarchical authority structure. So that's a positive. I also think it's it's good in the sense that if everybody in the in the authority structure is acting with integrity, this model actually pr- protects not only the congregation, but the leaders in the model. Right? Because right if somebody is being abused by someone on level one uh, or level 10, then there's someone who that person reports to that you can go to for, for adjudication, for remediation of some sort when it's working well. What I want to talk about now is I want to talk about some of the weaknesses, and then I want to talk about from a biblical perspective, where do we shake out on this? Because I don't think anybody's going to be surprised where Jesse and I shake out on which models we think are are biblical and which ones we don't. But I want to sort of like bring the scriptures to bear specifically on this model and talk about where do we see, what do we see the Bible saying about church poly in reference to this model? Yeah, I think that's fair. That's that's a good place for us to kind of uh, end and wrap up. And I think as just like a precursor to that, as we get into that discussion, it's important to remember that it's not as if like church polity is a buffet. I think there are certain parts, just like when we talked about the whole series of what what does it mean that Christ redeemed us? What does the, his right. death on the cross really signify to us? What does it accomplish? We talked about when we looked at those different models of the atonement, different theories of understanding what actually took place, that there were parts of those which were beneficial for us to understand, to uh, absorb and to appreciate. And yet we found that in the end, there was one model that we thought best represented the full counsel of God and was best aligned with the scriptures. I would say the same thing is here. There's a lot of things, especially pragmatically, that are important for us to appreciate in each of these models. And yet we understand that some of church polity, because the scriptures don't like explicitly prescribe a church polity. Of course, Paul is not giving us this kind of regimented direction on here's how you do this thing. Here's how you organize everything. Some of that we have by clear inference. And yet I think at the same time, there's things that, again, that we can admire. I think what happens here is it's not so much that it's the models themselves abstracted and held up for us to evaluate that we find disagreeable or perhaps discontent or disassociated with the scripture. It's instead who exemplifies those models right? in the way in which they do it, that we would say, aha, that does not seem to comport with the scriptures at all. So I just want to give that clear word as we go through these. 
And uh, I'm with you again. Like I would say, if I'm honest with you, like my own denomination has, it's not as if they've gone through a buffet line and been like, where, where's the Episcopal, where's the congregational dish? Like I want to get some of that on my plate. And yet there are elements I see that embody those clearly, both of those things and in the way that in which we conduct business and do all these things. And I was taken by the fact that, you know, you said you're talking about just the way that we describe words, words of course do matter. And of course there are generally denominations who've tried to distance themselves for good reasons against certain words, because especially the Protestant ear, they bristle or find them offensive, or there's like a tin ear with respect to like how they hear them. And it just gets them riled up. I'm sure there are people who are listening to me talk on this episode. I've said that we're like sacrament and ordinance, like interchangeably. And there's some yeah. people that would look at that and say like, how dare you, sir? <laughs> Those are different words. And I'm trying to, in some ways, like bring some, some, uh, I don't know, like push out in the boundaries of those things. And we're saying that here, to your point. You know, like, it's okay. Like, can we just say this? It's okay in some ways to embody parts of the Episcopalian model. Right. Like, we're saying, like, listen, to have a structure, to have an overseer, to have guardians of orthodoxy. I, I think there are many parts of this that we would say, yes, a thousand times yes. Like, those things are, are all important. So I, this, I feel like I'm just constantly qualifying on this episode, but I want to make sure that people understand where our hearts are at in this that we really are after making sure that the visible church does the things that we talked about in the last two episodes. And that is that it really comes close to the Lord Jesus Christ into the mission that he's given us by creating us, putting us together, making us family in a transcendent and supernatural way. And the governance that we choose, the polity that we undertake should be at its center, pushing into that mission. And so in so much as we do that with faithfulness, there is going to be a lot of variety in that, yeah. both in a particular model and across the different models, like cross-sectionally, as we look at them. So enough of me blustering. It's time for you to start talking about what are the disadvantages of the Episcopalian polity. Yeah, I mean, I think the the main disadvantage is um, it's also its greatest strength is that the the so goes the head, so goes the body, right? I suppose exactly. it's kind of the saying, right? That's so, the leverage. That's and the, what I'm talking right, about. And the, the, the Roman Catholic Church is actually a really good example of this, right? Um, yes. Former Pope, I don't know, Pope Emeritus, whatever he was calling himself, Pope Benedict um, just recently died. And under Pope Benedict's leadership, um, and also the, the Pope before him, John Paul II, I think, um, there was an enormous amount of conservative theological resurgence in the church. And although we would have strong disagreements with a lot of things in the Roman Catholic Church, the the conservative resurgence within the Roman Catholic Church was by and large a good thing. Um, the whole Roman Catholic Church followed after Pope Benedict, um, for the most part, because he was the head of the church. And so they didn't right. have an option except to follow after him. Well, now we right. have, um, you know, Papa Frankie, the hippie pope, and he is leading the church in a very different, uh, not conservative direction. And so the, the, the direction that the head of the church is going, and I mean the temporal earthly head of the church, the di direction that the earthly leader is going that's at the top or close to the top of the pyramid determines the direction that the rest of the church goes. That is a strength when that head is acting in a good and godly and theologically sound conservative direction. It's an incredibly exactly. destructive thing when that head of the church is operating in a, a wicked or an ungodly or an, a theologically liberal destructive direction. So I think it's a, it's a double-edged sword, right? Because there's, just like I was talking about with accountability, if 
if the person at level 10, 10 being the base of the pyramid, if they do something wrong, there's someone at level nine that you can appeal to. And if that person doesn't hear your case or you disagree, then you can appeal all the way up to the top. Well, the problem is that if, if the issue is the person at level one, there is no one to appeal to. There's no one, if you think the Pope is wrong, there's no one to go to. I mean, I suppose technically the Cardinal of Bishops could depose him, but that's never going to happen. So the the most courageous the Cardinals of uh, the Bishop of Cardinals has ever been was when they dug up the former Pope and said he was a heretic and then burned his body. But they wouldn't do that to a living Pope. That that's pretty that'd be pretty unheard of. So I think that's the main weakness of the the model is that yes. it, it has this tendency for these great swings. Right. It's it's got a certain level of stability, but that stability can be really damaging if it's stable on the wrong foundation, if that makes sense. Yes. Listen, you are now qualified to trade stocks on margin. That's leverage. That's what I'm talking about. It's that leverage that at the top, if it gets if it's right, it's going to be great. Yeah. And what you're going to have is beautiful accountability that that falls down upon everybody else so that they are conforming to a true standard. But if the person at the top, so to speak, gets it wrong, then essentially everybody gets it wrong or has no recourse to bring about a proper correction. Yeah. And that's what I'm saying. It's like getting things done or, and I think we see this in several uh, congregations, several denominations right now, that is those that are overtly organized in this kind of way where there's a hierarchical structure, when somebody at the top or even those persons representing the top of the pyramid make a decision on behalf of everybody else that requires everybody else to submit or yield to that decision, then there could be massive fallout if it is incorrect. Or to your point, especially in the Roman Catholic model, there's automatic acquiescence. And we can right. talk, you know, without getting into that, the specifics, where you would say, like, well, if the Pope says it, I must comport with it. Right. And, and there are several I actually admire. Roman Catholics who are consistent with their theological perspective would say that is what I must do right. because I understand this apostolic line that comes and starts through Peter and falls all the way down through the current Pope. And so if he says it, he's speaking whether it's ex cathedra or otherwise, and therefore I must believe it. And not only that, I must act on it and I must put aside or hold in the bands, even my own personal convictions, which might stand in contradistinction to what he's promulgating. That is the problem. That's like high leverage. It's like really, really good when it's good. Or it could be really, really bad when it's bad. So yeah. I'm, I'm with you. Like that is the thing that I think you said it cuts both ways, right? That's that's exactly what leverage does. If you borrow money to invest in stock and it goes up, that's really, really good. If you borrow money and it goes down, you lose a bunch of money. That's really, really, yeah. really bad. Yeah. So again, all I can think of is, is leverage when I think about this stuff. Yeah, I think the other main weakness that I would identify is with what I said earlier about not getting into the sacerdotal program Paul, you know, problem, um, in detail, this model of ecclesiology of polity has a tendency to elevate the people at the top of the, of the pyramid inappropriately, right? So the Roman Catholic model is the most explicit. And and so that's kind of where we're sort of shooting at here is in the Roman Catholic model, the Pope is not just a representative of Christ. He is speaking in Christ's stead. So when when the when at the end of the Gospel of, of Matthew, when Christ says, "Yes, I am with you even to the end of the age," the Roman Catholic theology is that that promise is fulfilled in the office of the Pope, right in the right. person of the Pope. So this model, although not necessarily, there's no like logical 
relationship that makes this necessarily the case, there is a tendency in these hierarchical authority structures for the people who are at the top of the model to sort of become stand-ins for God. They step in and they end up stepping into and fulfilling the place that only God should, right? So even as we had to dance around, we had to dance around the language of the head of the church and try to clarify, well, I mean, like the earthly head of the church versus like the eternal head of the church. We shouldn't have to make that distinction, right? Because there's only one head of the church and that's the Lord Jesus Christ. So the other models that we're going to talk about, they don't struggle Although in practice, sometimes this happens. Sometimes you get a charismatic senior pastor that ends up doing this. And I would actually argue that the problem in those cases is that that charismatic senior pastor actually starts to operate like a bishop, a, a yes. first among equals, and then not even a first among equals, just a first among lessers. Right. That's the problem with this model, though, is that that first among equals becomes first among lessers. And then we have this tendency to elevate them to sort of this like... Uh, like vicarious position where they're serving as God to the people. And that's a real major temptation and weakness that this position has to grapple with. And I think yeah. biblically speaking, that's the main biblical argument against this, right? right? Is that the Bible teaches that there is only one head of the church. That's the Lord Jesus Christ. And that he rules and reigns through the power and presence of his Holy Spirit and his people. And although he appoints officers who represent him, they never take his place. They're the under shepherds and he remains the over shepherd. Never are they ever to be confused with the over shepherd. They don't ever step into his place. They don't ever sit on his seat. They simply serve at his pleasure and execute his commands. Yes, that's right. I mean, and this is in some ways where you can sometimes, again, as we're just evaluating and talking about it, I think helpfully disassociate the structure, the superstructure, the super Jason kind of construction away from the way in which it has been implemented. So I think generally a lot of like Episcopalians, Anglicans who often use an Episcopal model would say something like, well, the authority from Christ is always accompanied by service and submission. So Christ gives the apostles his authority along with the power of the Holy Spirit so they could fulfill his great commission and they in turn choose leaders among those who come to faith and maturity in their discipline and discipleship to continue that work even after their deaths. So if you have overseers theoretically that really take that seriously, this could be, I would say, applied, though it has its own downsides and its own proclivities toward temptation to abuse in a way that comports with the scriptures. However, per your example of the Roman Catholic Church, here's the difference. If you were, let's say, to go into the home of a devout Roman Catholic, it would be, it wouldn't be unusual to find somewhere a picture of the Pope, right? Right. If you go into my house, I like I don't have a picture of my pastor on the <laughs> wall or like the district superintendent on the wall or but the, you're right. The temptation is to I would say codify a cult of personality. Right. However, in the Roman Catholic view, they have quote unquote good reason for codifying that cult of personality because they believe the scriptures are teaching that the Pope is the apostolic representation of Peter. Right. So that is not part and parcel per se of an Episcopalian polity. It is kind of like, I wouldn't even say a divert. It's one of the roads you can travel on right? where you're bringing your theological conviction alongside or parallel to Episcopal polity and saying, this is, this is how we, to quote Wontel Jordan, this is how we do it. <laughs> and we do it by saying that the Pope represents you know, basically the head of the church on earth. Right. And therefore, if you believe that, why wouldn't you have his picture in your home? Because that is something, at least by your persuasion and conviction, 
so important that it ought to give a sense of veneration, however you manifest that. So I'm with you. Like, this is the thing. So many of these things can be abused, but there's principles in here that really, I think, draw us back to the scriptures and say, like, we want orthodoxy. We want doctrinal fidelity. We want a purity in our instruction that comes from the Holy Spirit, vouchsafed to under shepherds of the Lord Jesus Christ, who don't superimpose him, but are submitted to him. And there is a great temptation, at least in this model, to deviate from that. Yeah. And I think one other element of this that can be really risky, in this model, there is also a tendency for the, the church, the visible church, to be equated with the institutional church. And yes. so so in the Roman Catholic model, when we talk about the Roman Catholic Church, we're talking about the priests, bishops, and, and pope. We're not even talking about the people in the pews. So in a certain sense, they would say, yes, the people in the pews are the church. But when they talk about the church, the teaching authority of the church, the church is the, is the clergy in the Roman Catholic model. And although Protestant models that use an Episcopal government, right? Anglicans use an explicitly Episcopal model. Um, yes. The Methodists call their call their leaders bishops. It doesn't quite fit the normal Episcopal model. Some Lutheran um, groups use, use bishops, have bishops. Um, for sure. In that model, there is a tendency for the visible church to be equated in a one-to-one sense with the institutional clergy. And I think that is a very dangerous perspective. It's explicitly done in the Roman Catholic model and the Eastern Orthodox model to a certain extent. It's implicitly, I think, accidentally done in some of the Protestant models. And when we're not careful, even in in models where we don't explicitly or implicitly hold to Episcopalian model, when we start to look at the leadership of the church as what constitutes the church, that's when we run into issues. And that's a major danger for this. And that's the other thing that I think mitigates against this model from a biblical perspective, is that the Bible is very clear that the church is the gathered assembly of saints. And the visible church is all those who who profess faith in Christ Jesus explicitly, and as a Presbyterian, I would say, and their children, right? And their baptized children, but it's it's the assembly of the saints, not just the, the ministers of the church, but the church itself. So a properly ordered, a properly constituted local congregation is a duly appointed and ordained body of elders and the saints who worship when they're gathered together under the authority of those elders. That's the local church. In the Roman Catholic model, the priest can do mass in his bedroom, and it's the same as if he does mass in front of the people, except that the right. people aren't deriving any sort of benefit. So we have to be careful with that. And because that is the tendency, again, it's not an, I don't think it's a necessary consequence of the theology, but it is a tendency that I see pretty commonly. Right. Since the Bible speaks against that tendency— then at the very least, we should be very cautious and gun-shy of adopting a theology that has that tendency as a likely or common outcome, right? If I if my theology uh, commonly leads me to think that adultery is just fine, then there's something screwy with that theology. And although you might be able to hold that theology without coming to the conclusion that adultery is just fine— you got to ask a question about why does this theology seem to seem to line up and pair with this weird 
unorthodox thing? Why do those things seem to come hand in hand? And our, our sort of sanctified instinct should be, I should really be cautious with that. Because if the Bible teaches against theology B, and theology B seems to come along with theology A, then maybe theology A is not so good either. Right. So hopefully as we go through these different forms of polity, again, we're, we're talking about just a handful of them to give a flavor and a sense for some of the general conscriptions that are present in our world and how I would say God-honoring brothers and sisters have tried to right. take where the scriptures teach and make sure that the visible churches to which they belong subscribe to some kind of model that promotes the essential elements, natures, and mission of the church that hopefully you're starting to evaluate where your church stands. Yeah. Maybe there's a couple of things that you'll find that there's adopted and the flavor is mixed that you're a little bit like, give me a scoop of vanilla and pistachio as well <laughs> on your ice cream cone of polity. And that's okay. If just to think through this process, and maybe I would say, I would encourage you to talk to your elders and your pastor about this. Yes. Say, what is our church polity? And because these things do matter, of course. And again, in the whole scope of leaning in and, and loving the visible church that you're with, it's really important that you get after what your church polity is like and to understand a little bit more what goes on behind the scenes, how decisions are made, the thought process of doctrinal establishment. All of this is super, super important because it is how we do life together as part of the visible church. Yeah. One of the things I love about our little podcast is that because we have brothers and sisters all over the world, shockingly, who listen to us talk to each other. Because of that, we get to see some of this variety, both in denominations and otherwise. And people should know that the reason why this thing keeps going forward, at least the reason why it sounds so good, the reason why it drops into your feed, whatever it is you use to catch our little podcast, is because there's so many that have come alongside and said, listen, I want to help what's going on with the Reformed Brotherhood. Everybody who listens is part of this family, and we're so grateful to everyone. And there are some who are able, because God has given them different abilities in life, and giftedness and resources to actually give financially to make sure that it remains free. You heard me say that before, but it's just the truth. And so I want to especially thank Brother John Michael, who joined the Patreon group and is giving a little bit to support our podcast. Here's the thing. We have lots of people that give a little bit, and all of that little bit accumulates up, and it makes sure that we can cover all of the costs that are shockingly expensive to yeah. put forward a podcast that sounds good and doesn't make you want to throw us out the window. Listen, if you want to throw us out the window because of what we're saying, that that's fine. We don't want the quality though, <laughs> and the ease with which you're able to access this information to suffer. And so we're so thankful for those that I give. So, so brother John Michael, thank you so much for doing that. I don't know if we've said before, maybe just to clarify this, if for whatever reason you're thinking, you know what, I would also like to give, I just want to give a little bit, which we are so grateful for and appreciate. Here's how you do that. We've talked about Patreon. This is a website that allows people basically to give kind of like a tip, so to speak, yes. in, in layman's terms, toward whatever thing that you want to give it toward. So if you go to Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com backslash Reform Brotherhood or just to reformbrotherhood.com, you'll find a link there as well. You can jump in there and join several others who are saying, listen, I've got a through buck, through a couple of bucks or in Brother John Michael's case, a couple euros because <laughs> we got some diversity here in the true. Brotherhood and Sisterhood of Christ uh, to go toward the the little thing that we're doing here. Man, are we so appreciative of that. I, I just praise the Lord that there are others that help us cover the cost as we ourselves help cover the cost to make sure that this happens. So if that's of interest to you, I encourage you to go check it out. 
If it's not, that is totally fine because I'm glad that you're here and listening and being a part of the family, even if we never hear from you, but we'd love to. And you can email us at info at reformbrotherhood.com or Tony, do you remember, because you know I don't, what the actual voicemail <laughs> phone number is if people want to call us and just leave a voicemail of any kind? Oh man, you're putting me on the spot. It's been a long time since we've announced this. I think it's 607-444-2767. Bros. Bros, yes. I believe that's it. That had the right cadence beyond just yeah. the dot, 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 dot. Yeah. It had the right numerical cadence for me. So I'm just going to entrust that it is to you the responsibility of holding that number <laughs> in mind and then saying it for all of our dear yes. listeners. Yeah. The other way you can get involved. I, I try not to piggyback on top of Jesse's Patreon conversation because I end up sounding like an NPR pledge drive. But on top of that, if you want to, if you want to interact with other members of the Reformed Brotherhood, uh, whether it's me or occasionally Jesse seems to jump in and out of the Telegram chat lately. I know that he's, <laughs> he's got this giant test coming up here that he's studying for. So that's why he's been true out of there lately. Uh, but if true. you want to jump in and interact with me or with other members of the Brotherhood, uh, you can jump in. It's T the letter T dot me slash reform brotherhood. You can hop in there. There's all sorts of fun topics. Uh, there's a general chat. If you just want to sort of have a regular stream of conscious chat going on. Um, there's a, my favorite is the prayer, uh, prayer requests and updates. Um, we've got people who are constantly asking for prayer and who are actually being prayed for. And then people are sharing the answers to those prayers. We're seeing, um, we're seeing medical things that are being prayed for. We're seeing spiritual things that are being prayed for. Um, we're seeing relationships that people are asking for prayer for. And right. I guarantee you, I know this because I pray for these things, but I know there are other people in the group who are also praying for these requests. Um, when you come in, if you have a question or if you need prayer, there are people who will take seriously your request for prayer and they will write it down in their prayer log or put it in their Logos Bible software, or whatever they do to remember to pray for you. And they'll actually do it. Um, and then they're going to ask you how things are going. So there's uh, that's also something you don't see a lot of. But we'd love to have you join in. Um, it's a pretty good, steady group of people. And it's, a, I think, a pretty friendly group. We don't have a lot of like, there's not a lot of trolls. Once in a while, a troll wanders in and we, we kick them out. But um, for the most part, people are genuine and sincere and they're kind. So check it out, t.me slash Reform Brotherhood. It seems like you guys vanquished the trolls, Pilgrim's Progress style. It's true. I'll leave that reference to those who have read. So at the risk of making this just slightly longer, let me ask you a question that I, I did not uh, preface uh -oh. before we started recording that I was going to ask you. So you're right. So part of the reason why I'm not as intimately involved yet with that chat that happens, by the way, it's kind of a grand experiment. You got people just like, and you should say, in case people are like feeling overwhelmed by like, oh my goodness, like I, I don't want to get involved in this, like the massive string of chats. It's actually like several chats that are organized into categories. Right. So there's like a category for prayer requests. Right. General things about music and preaching yeah. and all kinds of other stuff. So it's a really fun way to kind of just jump into a bunch of topics with people that are actually responsive and active and engaged volitionally in that conversation. So right. with all that said, part of the reason is, yes, uh, I'm working on something that within 30 days of this recording uh, will be over, right or wrong. Lord willing, it'll be the last great thing that I have to do with respect to this particular thing I'm studying for uh, by God's grace. But I'm going to ask you this. Uh, at the risk of making this sound like the Telegram chat is in Episcopal polity. <laughs> By way of incentive, because I know there's a certain number of people in it, and I can't remember exactly how many there are, what kind of number would you say would be a reasonable goal 
by which if we accomplish that kind of participation and involvement that I would jump in and join oh, man. unreservedly. And then people could like put me on blast and, you know, note me in the chat and all that stuff. What is that number? So we get like, I, I see you're in there, brother Pete. So the question is how do people can brother Pete recruit to this chat so that it would be reasonable to say like, listen, here's the goal. And then Jesse who is the Episcopal Bishop of the Telegram chat will come in (laughs) and have conversation and expose himself vulnerably to you so that you have full access into his Telegram. Oh, this is a a severe responsibility. Last time we did this was with the Facebook group, and I (laughs) totally scammed you and picked a really reasonable... You did. So there are 163 members in the group right now. So let's say 350. Whoa. When we get 350 people, then that's that's what I would say Jesse would commit to the group. Whoa. I was way higher than I thought you were going to say. Okay. Yeah. I okay. think that's reasonable. I mean, I, I know how many people listen to the show roughly on a weekly basis. So I think that's a doable number. Okay. Come come hang out then, everybody. Come hang out with us. Yep, 350. And apparently that number, it was timestamp it. We're, we're on record. That's what's going to happen. I don't know. I, I obviously I'm joking. I don't. I'm not sure that the Telegram group aspires or conspires to Episcopal policy, but <laughs> it seems like a really good joke. I just couldn't pass That's up. True. Well, Jesse, I think that should do it for this week. We've got more coming in the next couple of weeks. We're going to talk about a couple other models of church polity, and then I'm That's sure we'll right. have a little bit more cleanup to do after that uh, with a couple more ecclesiology <laughs> episodes. So until that time, Jesse, honor everyone. Love the visible church you're with. <laughs>